Hello, I'm Becky Hadid, host of The Storied Recipe. As my weekly guests share their stories through the vessel of cherished food memories, we all become better cooks, more grateful for the gift of food, and we honor those that have loved us through their cooking. A huge welcome today to Eartha Lowe, the creator and editor of Cooking Green Goodness magazine, the first Black-owned vegan magazine in Canada. Eartha was born and raised in Jamaica and named after her father, one of the originators of the Roots Reggae musical movement in the 1960s and 70s. While Eartha's love of cooking was born in her mother's kitchen, her journey to veganism was born from both her father's Rastafarian religion and one very memorable experience when she was young. Today, Eartha is sharing a delicious corn recipe inspired by a woman nicknamed Krabby, whose husband filled the air with positivity and feel-good reggae chants as he walked the summertime streets with ingredients for Krabby's boiled crab and sweet, buttery, crisp corn on the cob. Before we get started, I'll pause just a moment so you can subscribe to the podcast. We have a classic Christmas episode coming next week that you definitely won't, don't want to miss. And the following Wednesday, an episode featuring a classic Greek New Year's cake. Oh, and I could go on forever about the incredibly exciting and diverse set of guests joining us in the new year. So make sure you subscribe. Thank you so much. And with that done, here is Eartha. But yeah, I appreciate you... Um interviewing me. Oh, I am just thrilled to have you from the moment I heard from you. And I guess it was through an email. I'm not sure. I just thought I love that name to the point that for the longest time, your magazine title is Cooking Green Goodness. But I kept reading it. (laughs) I kept reading it Cooking Green Goddess because Ursa... (laughs) <laughs> the name Eartha just makes me think of Mother Earth and a green goddess. And so I think of you as a green goddess. <laughs> well, a green loving, <laughs> a brown skinned green loving goddess is how I think of you. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Thank you. <laughs> so, yeah, tell me about that name. Is that common? How did your parents choose it? So, the name is not very common. Um, so, if you think back to the late 70s, Mm-hmm. At the time of my birth, uh, my father, his name is Earl Lowe, okay. and he was just coming into his own as a popular reggae musician. He's also, you know, a deep thinking songwriter, and he's also one of the founding fathers of what you would call the Roots Reggae era, and he's also Rastafarian. So as his first daughter, you know, he wanted the letters E-A-R, for sure to be in um, his first daughter's name and just somehow be intertwined with his. So he chose to name me Eartha after Eartha Kitt. Do you know who Eartha Kitt is? Don't tell me about Eartha Kitt. So Eartha Kitt, she was a singer. Um, She was also an activist, comedian, dancer, and actress. And um, in 1967, um, she was also the first Black female to star as Catwoman in the third season of the television series, Batman. So she, you know, she's a very soulful jazz singer, (laughs) um, you know, from, from that time. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm looking her up now. I had to have a a visual. Here she is. Yeah. She's a beautiful woman. (laughs) She is a stunning woman. And do you know, I watched that Batman series as a kid. Oh, you did? I did. This is is the one that would do like the kapow, bang, right? (laughs) Correct. That's crazy what an amazing name story and it doesn't then have anything to do with mother Mother. earth or nature or or that no I mean you could say that it's all tied in because my Mm. dad being Rastafarian you know Mm. that's just part of the Rastafarian culture the philosophy of like living in peace and love and being mindful you know with the earth and what you put in your body and all that stuff so who knows? Mm. <laughs> so yeah, it doesn't not fit. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Okay. So what what is that? Tell me a little bit more about. Is it a religion? Is it an approach to life? What does Rastafarian mean? I mean, it's something we've all heard, you know. That's, yeah. But I so, think you associate it maybe well, definitely with reggae music, right? Yeah. So in the roots reggae area, uh, spiritual themes definitely became more common in reggae lyrics um, in the late 1960s. And that was after the visit of uh, Haley Selassie, who was, if I'm not wrong, Ethiopian uh, king. So Roots Reggae, pretty much it speaks to the everyday lives of a people and their struggles. Roots Reggae also speaks to like social issues, Black liberation, spirituality, and religion. And that religion also includes uh, the spiritual side of uh, the Rastafarian philosophy, like I said, of living in peace and love and being mindful of what you put um, in your body. Yeah, so uh, the latter half of like the... 1970s is considered to be the heyday of Bruce Reggae, um, mm-hmm. where you had artists such as like Bob Marley, uh, Peter Tosh, uh, Dennis Brown, Black Uhuru, Burning Spears. That's just to name a few. <laughs> so okay. Not- and so it was in sync with movements happening in other countries, but Roots Reggae really originated in Jamaica and was exported out. Am I correct on that? Oh, definitely. You yeah. are 100% correct on that. Yes. That's the philosophy of um, uh, being Rastafarian. Um, I I know growing up, a big part of it too was you don't even eat like pork. Like they live a lot off the land, Mm -hmm. Um, eating like uh, ital foods, which, you know, foods that are organic um, and fresh and like cooked with like minimal or like zero salt. You know, so that's also part of the culture of being mindful of what you put in your body and living off the earth. For example, there are a lot of Rastafarian communities where they live like in the mountains or what people would call in the bush. Uh And like I said, they literally just they grow their own food and they live off the land, you know. Mm -hmm. So like when people a lot of times when people think of veganism, they Mm -hmm. don't think about Jamaica, not knowing that veganism existed in Jamaica long long time ago you know Mm -hmm. it's not something that's out there like publicized but like Mm -hmm. we know like if you grew up and you're part of that Rastafarian Mm -hmm. uh, culture you do know about it yeah and it's not a fad it's simply a way of life exactly exactly that I've already learned so much (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I'm already bursting with so many questions. Um, oh, 
So, well, I just did a quick little Wikipedia look on, on your father. <laughs> oh, you did? I, I little did this Roy, you see him? Yes. Little Roy began his yeah. career at the age of 12? He did. He had his first hit at the age of 17, like a number one hit in Jamaica. And the song was titled uh, Bongo Naya. Wow. Yeah. And he worked with the you Whalers. Know, I know, oh, he did. He definitely did work with the Whalers. It, it wasn't until now, as I'm getting older and I'm seeing things like videos like right now he resides in England like he got my dad he got remarried um mm-hmm. I have uh two stepbrothers and a stepsister and mm-hmm. they all live in England and he is just loved in Europe in China he r- rarely goes back to Jamaica to perform but other parts mm-hmm. of the world like Germany and Italy they absolutely love him and his music Yes. Well, let's jump in to this story of Krabby. What a name. <laughs> I love Krabby. Do you know that almost every single person in Jamaica has a nickname? <laughs> you could go years without not knowing a person's name, but you only know their nickname. What's your nickname? Uh, mine was Apple. Apple. And because, yes, and because I was very light-skinned, um, they called me Red Pickney. Red. What does that mean? So Pickney in Jamaica is child. So Red Child. <laughs> Were you self-conscious about that, or was that just how? You know, no. I was used to it in Jamaica, mm-hmm. but to be honest, I okay. When I moved here, I I did not, and I don't know if it stems from being in Jamaica and being like called Red Pickney and always being like worshipped because my skin was lighter. I did not want to be known as the light-skinned girl mm-hmm. or to be looked at any different because my skin was light when I was in school in Jamaica. Uh, sorry, in Canada when we moved here. So mm-hmm. maybe it did have an effect on me, but I don't know. My sister told me once that I said to her, I don't remember this, that I wish I was darker skinned. Isn't that interesting? Yes. So... Mm-hmm. But she talked about, really, I would even use the word trauma over the fact that she's very light-skinned. And actually, she had like a side of the family that was light-skinned and she looked more like them and a side that was darker. And she was just like, it was awful coming from both directions. Yes. Mm. I can understand what what that is all about, for sure. Mm. Yeah, it's called colorism. (laughs) Right. Well... Here in the States, we have no stones to throw. So, right. <laughs> we'll just. <laughs> Going on in the US. But yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll just move back to Krabby and see what we yes, can learn yes, from yes. her. All right. So, going back to uh, Krabby's, man. So, one of my fondest memories growing up is of a lady nicknamed Krabby. So, at the beginning of every summer break in Jamaica, like clockwork, Krabby would set up a food stand by the roadside selling sweet butter crisp boiled corn on the cob and uh, boiled crab. So she would basically have buckets of live crab and corn delivered to her throughout the day by her husband. And he would be pushing like all the ingredients in, you know, what we call in Jamaica a hand cart. Mm-hmm. And w- what seemed to me like he would just walk miles, you know, and he was always like bursting with like feel good positivity and always like singing in reggae chants and you know as a child like that's what I remember from this experience as well 
And but one of the most exciting parts about this memory is that my brother, um, who's a year older than me, like he got to be Krabby's what we call little helper. So my big brother, brother, you know, working for Krabby meant free corn and crab for the whole summer for mm. me and my two younger sisters. And my brother would run down the street <clears throat> late in the mornings. Um, excited to begin stirring the pots and serving customers. And at the end of each day, um, working for Krabby, my brother would run home proud to feed his siblings because he would, you know, he would bring us um, left, like not even leftover food, but just food that Krabby would pack for us, mm-hmm. which, you know, which would be like the corn and the cra- and crab. <laughs> yeah. And, um, but to us, like this was good Jamaican food, you know, prepared in like large deep pots on top of like coal stoves bubbling with aroma by the roadside. And to this day, memories of Krabi, her husband, and summer with my siblings during this time in Jamaica are some of my fondest memories. And that's why I shared that recipe with you. The recipe is absolutely genius. Now, did you actually get the recipe from Krabi? I did not. This is my interpretation Mm -hmm. i don't Mm -hmm. know what was in crabby's pot (laughs) (laughs) but the recipe's sweetness this is just my interpretation of how she would have cooked and how crabby unknowingly inspired my imagination you know and like putting things like the thyme and the scallion and the coconut milk and the scotch bonnet pepper that aroma just brings back home to me like it speaks home and it brings me back to to Jamaica and to good memories. So I had to incorporate that into the recipe. And those flavors are, they're just pure magic. And it's so interesting because, you know, I'm finding, I think it's really a insufficiency. It's a shortcoming of a lot of American cooking is that we under season whatever it is that we're cooking in. So in this case, like we just tend to boil corn and water. And then we try to add all the flavor on at the end. And you do talk about cornaments, which was so (laughs) hilarious to me. I was like, what a corny joke. (laughs) But so funny. I love corn demands. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, you, you let us slather on the butter and the garlic, but you don't even need it because you infuse yes. that cooking water with, like you said, coconut milk and thyme and scotch bonnet peppers. Oh, yes. That's <laughs> it okay. Oh, did you make the... Did you make the spicy butter, the scotch bonnet? Uh uh. No, I, I, like I said, I will for the photos and my, my husband will love that. I mean, I'm just not fit to handle them. (laughs) That is fair. (laughs) The the point I'm trying to make is the recipe is absolutely genius because, yes, you put something on delicious at the end, but you start layering those flavors in from the second the corn starts to cook. That's right. And like I said, the aroma for me with that oh. recipe cooking, it just brings back such good memories of my time in Jamaica and my summers uh, on this, the corner, like running up and down the street, back and forth uh, to Krabi's food stand, you know. Mm. So. Now, you said your brother would bring this home for you and he was so yes. proud to bring this. He was. Well, and I can understand why, because, you know, even a bag from McDonald's would be something, but at least here in the States, crab is like a delicacy. Now, yes. is it 
there because, of course, Jamaica's an island, so maybe not so much. Yes. <laughs> well, at the time, like, if I think about it now, it's definitely a delicacy. But now the area where Krabby would come from, like her husband, like I know they're close to a beach. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's not like something that happened uh, year round. It was literally just in the summer. So it's definitely uh, like, like a great summer treat for everyone. Right. Mm-hmm. So. Mm, absolutely. And you said her husband was delivering ingredients to her all day yes. long. So I'm imagining that this corn was totally fresh picked and the crabs were just coming out of the ocean. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. You know, would you just kind of know her from the stand? You can see people at the same time every week or every season, but you really don't know anything about them. Um, But in a smaller town, you might know somebody well. Tell me a little bit about where you lived and how that formed your relationship with Krabby. Okay, so we lived in a, which would have been considered a city, but the community was very close-knit. So unfortunately, you know, my siblings and I never did get to learn Krabby's real name. You know, (laughs) as much as she grew to love our little circle and as much as we loved her, all we did know about Krabby and her husband was that they had a daughter who was super light-skinned that people, for some reason, thought was unusual enough to talk about. And again, colorism, that's what I remember. And I guess this was unusual because Krabby and her husband were both dark-skinned. And um, the best way that I can describe the community that I grew up in is to say, for example, if you were to picture north, south, east, and west directions meeting in the middle at one intersection. That's how the community was made up in Jamaica. For example, if we lived on the west side, yes, I knew it to be a close-knit community. Mm-hmm. Close enough that you dare not pass a neighbor without saying good morning, good afternoon, good evening. And, you know, as a child, you also would dare not misbehave in the presence of your neighbors. <laughs> Otherwise, your parents would hear about it. To know Jamaica is to know that most communities are close-knit. And everyone would come in the middle to get their crab and corn and maybe to go to school and to shop as well. Exactly. Exactly. You know, here, like you might say, north side, south side, and a lot of times that would bring with it like a rivalry. You know, maybe if you were at school, it was like west side. Nope, nope, not at all. (laughs) Not at There was in the neighborhood where I grew up in, I grew up in St. Catharines. There was at the time when I was there, I don't recall like violent violence where we could not walk down the street. I mean, other than having people try to break in our houses a few times, like your house a few times. I don't recall like any gun violence or anything that would hinder us having a good time or being able to run down the street and feeling unsafe. Yeah. 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 I read what you had said about Krabby's husband. You said, you know, he walked miles at a time bursting with feel-good positivity and reggae chants. Aww. Oh, and I just I just loved that. Um, and yet at the same time, I almost felt, um, and this isn't like my burden to feel, I almost felt maybe a burden for you because there is this maybe stereotype, I guess, about Jamaicans. It is this exactly what you said, feel good positivity. You know, there's a positivity and a cheerfulness and a quickness to laugh. And I think you even brought up the phrase one love. Yes. I guess I'm just thinking, you know, obviously an entire set of people can't be feel 
and you know and so yes. I guess I'm just wondering as a Jamaican kind of wondering what your sense was of the cultural personality yeah. growing up in Jamaica but also if that's been a burden on you as you learn to express a range of emotions and you know so does that question make sense Oh, it does make sense. So yeah. this is how I would answer that question. So let's just go back to like the Jamaican model and what the culture really is all about. So the Jamaican national model is out of many one people. And it is based on the population's multicultural roots because we are we come from all over. You'll find people from China, from India, from Africa, everyone in Jamaica. And um they all speak Patois, <laughs> right? Mm. So I like to talk about the fact that the history of Jamaica is a rich and vibrant one and that the history of Jamaica does inspire its people to move forward as a nation. And Jamaica's history speaks to experiences of hardship and prosperity and the growth and determination of a people. And um, on the Jamaican flag, Black depicts the strength and creativity of the people. Gold is the natural wealth and beauty of the sunlight. And green does represent hope and agricultural resources. One people is a message. One love is a message. Now, the message of one love does serve as a gateway to positive feelings. It takes you back to carefree times in beautiful places, strengthening the healing power of good memories. The message of one love refers to the universal love and respect expressed by all people for all people, regardless of race, creed, or color. I agree with you that is it is definitely not possible for any Jamaican to be cheery all the time, especially <laughs> when faced with hardships, but we are still rich in spirit. And we do we do delight in the sunshine. We delight in our beaches, our churches. Um, we do delight in reggae music, and we delight in comedic poetry. <laughs> and um, I do not feel um, constrained at all by these stereotypes. Okay, I am naturally positive, cheerful, and driven. And mm. it has a lot to do with my upbringing. Mm. I think that people also know that as friendly and jovial as Jamaicans are, <laughs> once you cross them, <laughs> that's pretty much the end of the relationship. So <laughs> we're happy, but... <laughs> that's yes. that black streak in the flag, right? The determination. Exactly. Strength. Yeah. We do have our boundaries, yes. Mm. Yeah. Tell me more about this comedic poetry. I'm, I'm, I'm curious... For my listeners, okay. and I'm also curious personally because I'm homeschooling my younger kids this year. We're doing a lot of poetry memorization, and I just decided we're going to do all Black poetry because ugh, there's such a rich tradition of Black poetry, and I'm so curious to delve into this yes. comedic poetry tradition. Tell me about this. So uh, one famous poet is called uh, Louise Bennett. Um, she is from uh, born in Kingston, Jamaica. Um, she did pass away in 2006. Oh man, you would absolutely love this uh, woman. Yes. <laughs> so Louise Bennett, very popular uh, Jamaican poet, folklorist, writer, and educator. You know, she performs her poems in Jamaican patois. <laughs> Have you heard? Of, does that ring a bell? No, but I'm looking at her and I just love her smile. <laughs> yeah. So would we understand it? 
I think so. There are definitely options. Even though she does recite a lot of it in Patwa, yeah. you could, you can definitely get the English uh, version. Oh, I'm so thankful that you brought this up. You said most of her poetry was comedic. Yes, yes, definitely. <laughs> Makes you laugh. Yes. Oh, I'm so excited. And how cool to have a woman elevated in this arena. Ex- exactly. And tell me a little bit about Patois. Oh, so it's basically... <laughs> <laughs> Why is it funny? <laughs> oh, man. Have you ever tried to speak Patois? <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's funny you're even asking me that question now. <laughs> No, I feel like most people have tried at least once or said like at least one word. So um, uh, the University of Toronto, does they have a course uh, dedicated to teaching um, people how to speak Jamaican Patois. It's actually been uh, recognized as an official uh, language. That's great. Which is great. Yes, yes. which is great. Um, in the magazine, I don't know if you've seen that there, like every issue, it has a section called uh, Jamaican food words and phrases. So for example, in Jamaica, you would call breadfruit brushy. And then I would tell people exactly what it is, um, like the English translation. And then I would like tell them how to say it in a sentence. (laughs) For example, like in English, you would say, fried breadfruit tastes so delicious like in pato you would say something like fried bread tastes good yeah <laughs> like, yeah uh, yeah yeah like you said have you ever tried no i i would have been too, <laughs> not even self-conscious i would have felt it was a mockery like a joke if oh, i tried I to do it you know and that's pretty cool that you do that in your magazine it is quite difficult to acquire the accent of a jamaican yeah, so sure. <laughs> unless you've actually lived there for many years yeah okay all um, right so So let's kind of start moving towards, you know, moving along on your journey towards starting this magazine. When did you start cooking and when did you embrace uh, a vegan lifestyle and philosophy? Okay, so as I mentioned, I have an older brother, like one older brother and two younger sister. Um, When it was just my mom and us and she had to go to work and school at the same time. And at times when she could not afford to pay a maid to take care of us, as young as I was, I took over the responsibility of running the house. I would comb my sister's hair like both their hair, get them ready for school. I would make all their lunches in the evenings after homework was done. We would go outside to play. We played together a lot. You know, we played so many games. We played baseball, dandy shandy, which Mm. if dandy shandy in North America, they call it dodgeball. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) When I came here, like, what is dodgeball? (laughs) You know, we played things like hopscotch. We skipped. We rode our neighbor's bikes. We raced together. We played marbles. We played jacks. We played board games like snakes and ladder, scrabble, monopoly. And on Sundays, you know, we would spend the day at the beach. Um, In the afternoon, my uncle would come and take us there. So my mom from memory like she cooked the best food um every sunday after we would go to the beach we would eat rice and peas and chicken with like sliced tomato and cucumber and grated carrot and i remember that i loved grating the flesh of the coconut for my mom to milk uh for use in the rice and peas and mm-hmm. after my mom would milk the grated flesh of the coconut she added she would add brown sugar to it and served it to me and my siblings as a treat you know, and in our home on Saturdays, it was all about soup. 
you know, a large, a large pot of soup would be cooked every Saturday. We all would, um, you know, sit around the table eating our soup on Saturdays, just sweating from the heat <laughs> of the soup and the heat of the sun. And, you know, Fridays just seem to always be designated for fish. Yeah, in our home, there's always music and books. I got to know Tracy Chapman. Anita Baker, Whitney Houston, Celine Dion long before um, moving to Canada. And can I ask, your dad was not there? No, he had left. There was a point where he did leave to pursue his music career further. He was living in the States at the time. Okay. Okay. Yes. So how old were you when you were taking care of your siblings? So I would say this started around the age of nine. Wow, Artha. Mm-hmm. And then one morning, she, on top of like all the stresses and everything, um, she woke up and she could not move. <gasps> yeah. So, so she had to go to the hospital and I'm thinking to myself, okay, it's me. Uh, someone has to be the bigger person now, take care of everybody. Mm-hmm. So I decided I had never cooked before. Like I would watch everything, mm-hmm. watch everything that my mom does, how she prepared so. I um I took it upon myself to actually cook dinner that day a wow. full meal. You didn't stop at, you know, chocolate chip cookies or anything like no, that. You just went I from no not. cooking to cooking a meal. <laughs> exactly. Wow. We had kidney. I don't know if you know uh, kidney mm-hmm. meat. That's that's what was there. Mm-hmm. Um there was rice. Um I made rice. I made kalaloo, which is my favorite thing to eat. Oh my gosh. I love kalaloo. That's... I chopped up <laughs> chopped up the the seasoning, the scotch bonnet, the green onions. Like like I cooked that meal the way my mom would have cooked it that day. And it's funny because to this day, my siblings will tell you it's one of the best meals they ever had. I feel like that tells us what we need to know about you. You know, (laughs) you just commit and you execute like this is who you are. And it does show also just the natural love that you had for cooking because you knew to kind of, like you said, taste and season and adjust. You knew exactly what you were going for. That's right. Well, that was just after watching for years and just not even watching, literally stalking my mom in the kitchen constantly. So, so as we move on, I feel like there's these two paths that I want to discuss. You know, veganism has led you to so much about what I know about you. You know, this magazine that you edit and produce and everything. But I also know you live in Canada and there are huge parts of your life, huge parts of your identity. And I just I don't know which one came first or how they relate to each other so let's just pick whichever one came first in your life oh man there are so many life stories becky (laughs) i've got my cup of coffee you just keep talking because i am so much so i moved to canada at the age of 12 and i would like to think that my vegan heart was at play years before this move so I mentioned to you earlier that my father, he had moved to the U.S. to uh, first pursue his music career. Um, during this time, there was a period that my mom had lost her job. So things were a bit tight and, um, you know, she had four mouths to feed. However, uh, we were surrounded by neighbors. I just absolutely, to this day, I still love like all the neighbors 
um, that we grew up around. Um, so they knew my mom's situation and they would help our family in any way that they could. And, and some of these neighbors also raised their own chickens. Okay. Um, I see where this yeah. is going. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no, it's not good. <laughs> but, but it's not good. <laughs> so there was one particular evening where, you know, there was a knock on our door. And I remember that it was Cherie's mom. So Cherie was a friend of mine that lived a couple of houses down and we had developed a friendship and we would walk to each other's gates and, you know, regularly chat, which was just a thing that we did. And on this particular evening, Cherie's mom brought a freshly killed chicken and handed it to me at the door. Now, mm-hmm. I knew warm. the chicken. Yeah, oh, gosh. I knew the chicken was uh, just killed because the mom told me and this was supposed to be our dinner. And I remember holding the chicken and still feeling the warmth and like seeing the yellow bits of, you know, when you pluck the feathers, the little bits of fat from the feathers, you know, were from where the feathers were plucked. And my, I'm telling you, my mom worked her magic in the kitchen as usual, seasoning and cooking this chicken. We all sat down to eat dinner, uh, me, my mom, and my siblings. And um, I don't know what it was, but before I even sat down to eat, I knew I would not be able to eat that chicken. And it's not that as if it I never ate chicken before, mm-hmm. but something about placing uh, like the freshly killed chicken like in my hand and actually telling me, mm-hmm. um, it just did not sit well with me. So mm-hmm. I took one bite. And I'm telling you, it must have been the best tasting chicken my mom had ever cooked. But that Mm. first bite was my last. I scraped all the, yeah, I scraped all the chicken onto my brother's plate. And I, for some reason, I could not get the taste out of my mouth. Um, And it's not that I didn't eat, I did eat chicken again. But for some reason, it was okay to me at the time, as long as I was not aware of the animal suffering. Or Mm. I... I don't want to eat a chicken that I probably just played with. <laughs> in the yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, I am mm-hmm. a person like I value animals lives lives. Mm-hmm. Um, this is why it's so important to me that when it comes to promoting uh, veganism, that people not just see vegan food and recipes, um, but the faces of animals that suffer uh, to be. Mm-hmm. So that is my story. <laughs> mm-hmm. That is mm-hmm. my experience. So I, I would say yes. Um, it definitely started long before I came to Canada. And also, like I said, I grew up with that Rastafarian mindset. So it was mm-hmm. it probably did play a role as well. As a kid, I also you could not get me to eat eggs. You could not get me to drink milk. <laughs> Mm. and I I, and again part of being because of that reason or just taste no I just never liked it like egg if if you try to hide egg in something I don't know what it was it just doesn't go past my tongue milk oh I can't stomach the taste like they tried goat's milk they tried cow's milk everything Mm. like and even almond milk I can't drink straight like anything milk yes that's so (laughs) interesting Mm. pork Mm -hmm. I've never had pork I never wow. had or not because they always thought pig was dirty. It's part of like Rastafari. Pig is dirty. Um, was your mom 
Rastafarian also, or was your dad kind of having like an influence on you from afar, or was this a community influence? Uh, my mom was not Rastafarian, but my dad, I'm telling you, definitely had an influence on me. Okay. And he still, he still does to this day. He would take me, oh man, I was like his little roll doll. He would roll everywhere. And I, I hate to say it, but I was his favorite. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Everyone knows it. He don't even try to hide it. He would take me to the studio where he was recording music. You know, I still have memories of like the lights and like the ganja smoking and the the hazy smoke and the red, gold and green, you know, he would take me all over the place. Yeah. So. And did you guys, you guys were able to stay in touch once he moved to the States? Yes, we were. He played a big role in us coming here, even though it was my grandmother that did sponsor us to move to Canada. He paid for everything. And I remember he actually came to Jamaica before we left. He was staying on a resort. He took us all to the resort to spend a few days and everything. So yeah, it was, he, he did play a a big role in us getting here as well. And um, after we did come here, we went to, before he moved to England, we did go to the U.S. a few times to spend time with him. He took us to Disney World. (laughs) (laughs) Universal Studios. How American is that? (laughs) Yes, yes. yes. So it was was awesome. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Um, And then what was the reasoning behind moving to Canada? I think if most people could pick Jamaica or Canada, they might choose Jamaica. (laughs) You know what? As much I was actually very happy to move. Were you? Okay. I was. I was. I did not feel like I think I knew this even as a child. Yeah. I did not feel that I could reach my full potential um, in life living in Jamaica. Um, my grandmother came to visit once and she actually I read about this in my next issue about some of the things that inspired the magazine and I remember that I always loved reading I loved the written word and as much books I have my grandmother was instrumental in really providing me with the tools to help develop my mind because she actually provided me with my as I call it my first big book mm, you know what was that like there was this excitement that my grandmother would be visiting us for the first time from abroad. No, and your grandmother I, was Jamaican, but lived in Canada or no? Yeah, she, she was well-traveled. Um, she okay. was so posh. Oh my God, beautiful woman. She reminds me of Diane Carroll. She was like classic movie star beauty. That's how I saw her, mm. <laughs> you know? So she uh, had moved to England after her husband passed away. He was killed riding his bike in Kingston, Jamaica. Mm. and that's my grandfather so she moved to England she studied nursing and then she moved to Canada and she was working as a nurse here in uh, Brampton and I remember there was this big excitement that she was coming to visit us Mm. and um, before this day all I knew about my grandmother was that she would occasionally send us barrels of goodies you know the peanut Mm. butter was the first thing my siblings and I you know would grab from the barrel and spread it of hard old bread we were fascinated with peanut butter because peanut butter what is peanut butter (laughs) (laughs) you know and then you move on to trying on the shoes that she sent and you know 
These shoes were fitted with oversized drawings of her feet that we had sent her months earlier. Now, before my grandmother arrived, we had spent the entire week polishing the house. And it was about mid-afternoon when I heard my brother shout, you know, he's like, Grandma, come. Like, you know, that's pot waffer. Like, yeah, yep, coming. And I remember I was sitting at the side of the house um, when he said this. I sat there until she arrived at the gate. Like, I sprung up. I ran towards her. And I didn't even say hello. I just straight up said, like, in Patom, like, Wayanium, right? Which is like, (laughs) what is your name? Like, my mom's face. My mom looked mortified. (laughs) My grandmother just looked at me like in shock. And like, because without even much of us, hello, I just ran up to her and asked her what her name was. (laughs) And she would actually tell me uh, in later years that her first thought was to think I was ill-mannered, but that she saw something else. And, you know, this was our first meeting or encounter together. And later that day, my grandmother actually gifted me a book about self-expression in conduct. It was 326 pages of filled with stories told by children about looking to the future, discovering beautiful ways, listening to sounds, seeking fair ways, making choices. And most important, um, it talked about liking yourself. This book had fables, poetry, lessons in music, dance, and children's and children and adults of all ages and races shaping my young mind. But that book was that book was mine. And you still have it. I still have that book. And yeah, so she was definitely a very special woman and she was definitely instrumental in getting us here uh, to live in Canada. And I was happy for it, you know, because I feel like being here definitely provided me with a lot more opportunities. Mm. It was a few years before we would meet again at the age of 12 <laughs> when I actually came to Canada. Yeah. And, and we, she got a house for us and everything here and we lived with her when we moved here as well. Yeah, I think I'm appreciating your nine-year-old self also that was so appreciative of that gift. You know, not, not every nine-year-old would think that a book was such a precious gift. Yes. I still have it. I still have because I was the first one to write my name in it, like to claim this book is mine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there are notes everywhere. I just, yeah. Mm-hmm. I had my first crush from that book. <laughs> oh, I know exactly what you mean. Oh, because you need to know I'm such a reader also. And I know I'm so glad you said that out loud because I think it's so hard to admit when you have a crush on a literary character. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about these opportunities that you had in Canada because you you edit and produce your own magazine. Tell me about the path to that and the kind of heart behind that. So it's sometimes difficult for me to answer this question. But um, one of the things that I do reflect on as part of the journey that inspired this magazine into being um, is that I do know that I have always loved stories told in books. I love comedy. I love fantasy. Um, I love reading about heartbreaks <laughs> um, and just any anything that when I'm reading it, it's I just feel like it's heroic to the moods of my heart. Um, in grade eight, part of an assignment, I actually did design my own magazine. In 2009, I actually created a family newsletter 
uh, to distribute monthly. And I call this uh, newsletter Earth the Cooks. It's just to keep everyone in touch. So what I actually did was request family members to email me pictures and special moments to be shared in the newsletter each month. And and in this family newsletter, I also shared recipes and photographs of home-cooked meals. Uh, way yeah. before it was popular <laughs> to do that. That really is the heart of this podcast, that it is food that yes. keeps people and families together. I mean, there was yes. just something that was that common ground between you yes. and family that was so far flung. Yes. Interesting. Like I said, I, I love writing. I love creating. I love food. I love vegan food. And I love to inspire um, positive change in people's lives through the way I express myself artistically. And I believe that what makes this magazine unique is that for one, this magazine is Canada's first Black-owned, 100% vegan food and wellness magazine dedicated to providing a platform where I can actually highlight the vegan food and culture that exists in the Caribbean community and amplify voices in the conversation surrounding plant-based food. Mm-hmm. Also, because this magazine is also published um, digitally, um, I am in a position to have a uh, worldwide readership, which is yeah. the case. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The Fruits of Jamaica issue that was published in the spring uh, this year was a huge success. Like the readership. Oh, <laughs> I, it exploded. I, yeah, it did. It definitely That's did. Um, so I'm, I'm happy about the direction that the magazine is going man. <laughs> I, I know it's like, but you have such lofty goals, but that's what keeps you going, right? You have purpose. Yeah, I do. I do want to inspire a shift in thinking about how we choose to nourish our bodies in the Caribbean communities and beyond. It's it's a lot of work, but I will get yes. there. <laughs> oh, if I'm being candid, I'm not vegan, but I, I have phenomenal respect for vegans and I have an open mind to learn and I am completely cheering for you in this Thank mission. You. I am who can argue with that story you shared Thank about you. having a, a dead chicken placed oh. in your hands. I mean like oh. who can argue with that? It was traumatic, I tell you. Yeah. <laughs> I I never forgot that experience. <laughs> Yeah. It was just, it was a very defining moment for me. The the closest we have, we live by a turkey farm. And the Sunday before Thanksgiving, the kids are always like, oh, all the turkeys are gone. Where did they all go? And you're like, you know where they all went. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, my partner, Richard, and I, uh, we, we founded our own vegan food and beverage company. Yeah, so it's called Richer Earth Vegan Eats. So we have a line of vegan dressing, um, but we started off by selling our herbed poppy seed dressing. Hugely popular, vegan, organic, and uh, gluten-free, and delicious. And I'm telling you, men, (laughs) whose dressing makes men eat salads. (laughs) (laughs) Grown men. (laughs) <laughs> men with muscles eat salads because of this dressing. <laughs> it's it's so much work, Becky, because like trying to get into stores or figuring out how to get your products mm. into stores and getting it uh, certified as vegan, certified as organic, it's it's a lot of work. So I am working on that as well. <laughs> now I'm on the Rich Earth Vegan Eats page, which is beautiful, That's by the way. Is this your partner here? Um, Richard, are you on shop that Richard Earth vegan yes. yes, yes. You That's know, Richard. <laughs> so okay, if, you put, he, if you put the two names together, 
Richard and Eartha. You get it's Richard. Richard Earth. I love it. I didn't even get that. I'm telling you, when people clue into it at shows, they lose their their minds. Yes. They're like, oh, Richard and Eartha. Oh my God, Richard. I absolutely love it. I just have so much confidence in where you're going, and I feel so honored I got to talk to you at this stage of it and know more about your story. I'm a big fan, Eartha. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> so tell everybody where they can find you. Okay. So you can find Cooking Green Goodness Magazine at cggmagazine.ca. And Cooking Green Goodness Magazine is also on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And our handle is at CGG Magazine. Thank you so much, Eartha. Thank you, Becky. Have, have a great day, okay? Uh, you too. Okay, bye-bye. Thanks again to Eartha. If you go to thestoriedrecipe.com and click on episodes, you will find all of Eartha's contact information, including links to Cooking Green Goodness Magazine and to the Richer Earth Vegan Eats website. As always, you can access Eartha's Krabby-inspired corn recipe on the website also. Just go to thestoriedrecipe.com and this time click on recipes. Also, if you're looking for the perfect DIY gift for Christmas, my free printable storied recipe binder has been incredibly popular over on Pinterest this season. The printable is just three pages, a cover page, story page, and recipe page. You can print and copy these elegant templates as many times as you like to share either just one recipe and its story with your family and friends, or multiple copies to create an entire binder of treasured memories and recipes. I kept the design as simple and neutral as possible, so chances are you can print this on your own home printer. They will work on any light-colored cardstock, and when tied with a lovely ribbon, are the perfect, thoughtful, personalized, and inexpensive gift. Simply go to thestoriedrecipe.com and click the Resources tab to get your own version. Finally, if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to share it with friends and family or to leave a review both mean so very much to me personally as I seek to grow this podcast and share more and more stories. Thank you and have a great week, my friends.